0: Chefs without restaurants, episode one hundred and thirty, with Virginia Willis.
1: There are all these, you know, the TikTok videos, Instagram reels, whatever. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a super famous food blogger with completely inaccurate information on the on their blog post. So um, it's just like anything, right? Like, I mean, anyone can call themselves an expert, and the truth is, is with our ready to press you know print button or you know launch button or post button or whatever we all have the ability to to put information out in the world and sometimes what is you know popular isn't always right so but i do think at the end that the good content does rise to the top
0: this is the chefs without restaurants podcast with your host chris spear each week i'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category, as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, I have James Beard Foundation Award winner, Chef Virginia Willis. She was the TV Kitchen Director for Martha Stewart, Bobby Flay, and Natalie Dupree, and Executive Producer for Epicurious TV on the Discovery Channel. She's made cookies with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, foraged for berries in the Alaskan wilderness, harvested capers in Sicily, and beguiled celebrities such as Jane Fonda and Bill Clinton with her cooking. But it all started in her grandmother's country kitchen. Virginia is the author of a number of books, including Lighten Up, Y'all, Basic to Brilliant, Y'all, Okra, and Grits. On the show, we discuss how she got into writing cookbooks, how her cooking style has changed, and her wellness journey, which led her to losing 70 pounds. We talk about food media and credible sources for recipes and cooking tips. Virginia is also passionate about sustainable seafood, and we discuss that as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, later in the week, we're going to be releasing What It Means to Be a Chef, which I cut from this episode, and I'm going to release as a little mini clip as I've been doing with some of our other conversations. So if you love the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast, the best thing you can do is share it. I would love if you not only share this episode, but tell people about the show in general. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you can rate podcasts. And the show will be coming up right after a word from our sponsor. Looking to make better pizza? How about bagels, bread, or English muffins? Then you need a baking steel. Don't just take my word for it. Kenji Lopez-Alt of Serious Eats and the Food Lab said, This is the answer I've been waiting for to produce consistently awesome pizza over and over. I've had my baking steel for a number of years, and I absolutely love it. Besides baking bread goods in the oven... It's the best way for me to make tortillas at home, uh, both corn and flour, as well as an amazing smash burger. And if you want to hear the whole baking steel story, I have founder Andrus Lagsden as a guest this season. So that episode should be dropping in a couple weeks. In the meantime, I'm going to drop a link in the show notes so you'll be able to pick up your own baking steel. Hey,
1: Virginia, welcome
0: to the show. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm excited to talk to you today. I love your books and have been following your work for probably a little bit over a decade now.
1: Wow. Yeah. No, my first book, my very first book came out in 2008. So yeah, it's been been a minute.
0: Wow. How did, uh, I mean, I guess just jump right into that, like the process of starting a cookbook, like what made you decide to write a cookbook in the first place?
1: Well, my job at the time, so I was the kitchen director at Martha Stewart, and um, during for for many years or for several years rather, and uh, during that time, the idea of me writing my own cookbook sort of percolated up to the surface because, of course, I had been helping other people write their cookbooks for a while. I, I you know, started out apprenticing with Natalie and I, helped Natalie Dupree, and then I worked with Ann Willen and she wrote a cookbook and then working with Martha Stewart and working on her cookbooks. So it was, you know, in the early 2000s, it's like, hmm, well, maybe I need to write a cookbook. So that's that's kind of where it came about. Um, But it it took took a little bit to get it going.
0: Yeah, it's so fun. It's like a diary of sorts, right? Like I look back at the work I've done, like I blog and keep recipes and just kind of seeing your evolution and just, you know, what you're into at the time and what your cooking style is. I'm sure it's fun to kind of look back on those earlier days when you have recipes and kind of see an evolution.
1: No, it really is. And it's kind of interesting because um, I think that one thing is that when I look back, you know, to the food that I was cooking and the recipes that I were teaching and say cooking classes or something, you know, uh, 10, 15, even 20 years ago, um, my cooking was a lot more international, actually, because I was living and working in New York and exposed to a lot of different kinds of food. And then when my first book came out, Bon Appetit, y'all, in 2008, in a way that sort of shepherded me into mostly Southern cooking. And of course, I am Southern, but I'm French trained and, you know, I've traveled a good deal. and been fortunate enough to. So uh, in a way, when I realized that only recently, and I was looking at these old recipes and I thought, wow, I used to really put a lot more international foods out there. So I, I I hope to broaden that box once again.
0: Yeah, we were talking before I started recording that that's how I found your work as someone who moved from New England down to the mid-Atlantic. You know, I really got into Southern food. My wife and her family are from Virginia Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved down here, I I fell in love with the food uh, and I've traveled down to Georgia and Charleston a bunch of times. And so I started, you know, picking up all these cookbooks about Southern cooking and food, things that I had never had. You know, I had never had pimento cheese. I had never had right. shrimp and grits until, you know, like 15 years ago. Right. Uh, so that's how I found your your first book. I'd like to jump back a little bit and talk about how you got into food and cooking. Um, Did you always grow up loving food? Was it something that was really important to your family? And then um, I know you went to culinary school. So just kind of talk a little bit about how you got into this food world.
1: Yeah, sure. So my grandmother uh, was a great cook. My mother is still a great cook. Um, Food was a tremendous part of our family. You know, um, my grandfather had a garden. My family had a garden, um, you know, living in the South, we have like a 12 month growing season, really, truly 12 month growing season. So, uh, food was always at the forefront of everything and everything took place in the kitchen uh, because there's always something going on in the kitchen. So of course, as a little kid, I wanted to be hanging out with, you know, my, my, my grandmother, my mother in the kitchen. So that's where the, the love of cooking started when I was quite young, um, And just always loved to cook. And then went to college, got a degree in history, graduated from the University of Georgia. Got to say go dogs on that note. Um, And I wound up in retail management. I was really like, oh, gosh. And I remember having this sort of epiphany at 25, which, you know, it's kind of funny to think about an epiphany at 25. But I was miserable. And I thought, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. And I started kind of thinking about what do you really love? What do you love to do? What do you like to do? And I I've always I'd always loved to cook. So that's where it all started. It was just that natural transition from loving food and cooking and then turning it into a career.
0: I love the idea of like the kitchen as being the focal point of the house too, you know, where things are going on. And I feel like not in all households, but for a number of years, I kind of like fell out a little bit. And now we're seeing Mm -hmm. kind of the return to more people cooking at home and having it become a family thing. And I really love that. Similarly, the same with me. I say my mom stayed home with me until I went into middle school. And that meant that we had a dinner on the table every night, you know, that, which sounds weird when you say it out loud, but like in the eighties, you know, when mom and dad were both working and there was microwave dinners and more and more fast food, like less people were cooking in the kitchen, but I still had that at home. And that kind of shaped who I became as like a cook.
1: No, for sure. No, um, I 10,000% I agree. You know, it's like people got busier. Um, my mom uh, didn't work for a period of time when I was young. And then, you know, and I think that makes a huge difference. Most households are like, you know, double income, both parents are working and, you know, it really did change and the proliferation of fast food and takeout and things like that. So yes, it was very much um part of my life growing up and doing my homework at the kitchen table. And it's so encouraging to see now like new homes are being built with the big kitchen islands and the kids are doing their homework at the island. And you know, I, I feel like the days of the formal dining room, or, you know, are a little bit past the way that homes are being built now. And it really is like people love to, Who doesn't like to hang out in the kitchen?
0: I work as a personal chef and so many, you know, I see different houses every night almost. And just to see kind of the evolution, especially with the newer homes, what they're like, and everyone's got these right. giant islands in there and, you know, a little eat-in uh, kitchen or, or something similar. Mm-hmm. So you went to culinary school. What did you start doing when you got out of school?
1: Well, let me back up for a second. I did go to culinary school, but before I went to culinary school, um, what happened was when I realized, when I had that epiphany, um, I realized that um, I wanted to get some experience. And I, and I really feel strongly about that. Like a lot of people like, oh, I want to be a chef or I want to go, I want to do this or I want to do that. It's like, you need to go work in a restaurant. And I I know that that's weird, especially here, but my, my point with that is, is it teaches you a lot in a very short period of time. And It is possible to craft a career not working in a restaurant and food, but it is not easy, right? So um, what I did before I went to culinary school was I apprenticed with Natalie Dupree, who's this grand dame of Southern cooking, who used to be based here in Atlanta. I apprenticed with her for a year, kept my day job in retail management at the department store. And on my days off, I went to work with Natalie And over the course of that year, I realized that this was something that I wanted to do and that I needed to uh, improve my skill set, and wanted to go to culinary school. So I actually went to culinary school near where you are now. It used to be in Gaithersburg. It was, um, or it used to be in Bethesda and then moved to Gaithersburg. But Academy de Cuisine was a culinary school in the DC area for a long period of time. So I went to a one-year program there. And then after that, um, I immediately came back and I worked a little bit from Natalie, but basically within the year I was off to France to get some more, uh, to get some more experience.
0: I know l'academy Academy closed. It's only been a handful of years, like yeah. four years mm-hmm. or so maybe because I even, I went there for something. I don't even remember, but I did like a workshop when I was there. Oh, I think that's where I learned to be a personal chef. I think they mm-hmm. offered like a three-day course or something. And Mm -hmm. it was like right before they closed. And this is probably like 2012, give or take.
1: Yeah, I know. I think that So the, when I was the last class that attended in Bethesda and it was really, um, it was a great program. It was a really small school. You know, I I knew that I didn't want to go to one of the larger schools like the CIA because uh, it's an, it's an associate's degree. I already had a bachelor's degree. Um, I really appreciated the small size. And I think that whereas of course, like The CIA is an incredible school, Johnson and Wales, there are a lot of different culinary programs. You know, the reality is, is that they can be very expensive. Um, And I think it's very important for if people are interested in food and interested in a career in food and want to go that route, that they they do the research and they make sure that that's the the best use of their time and money and that the school is lined up with what they want to do when they get out.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm very happy with the path I ended up with, but I tell Mm. people I went to Johnson & Wales and, you know, came out with, you know, like $80,000 in student loan debt, which was, I will always remember it was $404 a month for 10 years is what I got stuck with. And then that limited the jobs I took because, you know, the really cool jobs I wanted to go work Mm. at were looking to pay, you know, like at the time in 1998, like six something an hour. Right. I was like, I like, I'll barely be able to live taking that. So then I I took like corporate food service jobs and, you know, things that end up being good jobs, but they were paying me 11 something an hour with full benefits and all that. Right. And that, you know, my whole culinary career was literally shaped by the fact that I couldn't afford to take the jobs that I kind of wanted to take.
1: No, sure. And I think that that's true. I mean, if you think about the fact that, I mean, like, you know, the The reality is, is that no matter what part of the culinary profession you're in, even um, you know, even executive chefs, it's it, we're not NBA basketball players, right? This is not a super high paying job, um, and there are there are better and worse, but it it can be a super like your route and doing corporate food service in the beginning, it's a really practical path, and I know that plenty of people that have worked in the restaurant industry. And they get tired of the long hours and the long and the weekends and the over, you know, working at night and never seeing their kids and stuff like that. And I know uh, plenty of chefs over the years that have transitioned out of restaurants to working um, to working in, in more more nine to five food jobs.
0: Well, and you've had a lot of non restaurant jobs. So Mm -hmm. how did you kind of get into that? You mentioned, you know, you were working with Martha Stewart at some point, you helped other people with cookbooks. What was kind of that path that got you into food that wasn't working in a restaurant?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, So that's a great question because it is kind of crazy. My first job, as I mentioned, was with Natalie Dupree, and that was um, as as an apprentice on her TV cooking show. So from the very beginning, I was exposed to another part of the industry uh, the more of the media side of it and television and production and cookbooks and magazines. And she, Natalie had a monthly magazine column in the Atlanta magazine. And so from the beginning, my exposure was that now I did start working in restaurants early on because I had to pay for school. I had to, you know, it was, uh, get, not only paying for school, but it was also getting skills, So uh, after Natalie culinary school, after culinary school, went to France. I worked in restaurants in France. And then when I came back, um, I sort of just stayed on that media end of things and and continued working in food television. So, you know, when people watch all those cooking shows, that food's got to come from somewhere. That seems like a
0: really cool thing. And, you know, food media is becoming an even bigger thing now. I see all these people who they want to get in food and don't even want to work in a restaurant. They want to just create food content or do cookbooks, recipe development. And I really don't think that that's going to slow down anytime soon.
1: No, I don't think so. And I know that, um, you know, working in a restaurant is not the end, not the be all end all. Um, I do always suggest it for people. Like I mentioned before, I think that especially if you are in a good situation with a chef that he or she is well-trained and they have a tight kitchen. It's it's a great place for people to learn certain skills, um, to learn about uh, you know working in a small space, working with other people. There's a lot about like say working on a line that it doesn't seem like it has anything to do like serving 200 people uh, on a hotline. On a Friday night, what does that have to do with food television? Well, it taught me to be organized, right? It taught me to be organized. It taught me to, you know, work clean. Um, but it's, it's 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 only as, you know, it's just like anything. It's only as good as the experience. So I always encourage people, like if they are just even if they're, even if they're like taste testing it, right? That to to work for the absolute best, to try to get the best experience and the best education possible while you're working.
0: And working in food, food should taste good. And one of the things I see is a lot of these people creating food content are not trained as cooks or chefs haven't worked in restaurants. And they're making food that looks nice on a plate photographs. Well, it's a viral video. But like, is this something you could put on a menu at a restaurant that tastes good, that would sell, you know, long before I was creating food content, I had 20 plus years working in kitchens. Right. And, you know, so at some point you do have to have some kind of working knowledge of the food business, or you should to kind of make that content that works. You know, if you're going to be developing recipes for people to cook at home, you have to make sure they're going to work well and taste good.
1: Well, I agree. And I, I don't mean to sound like some grumpy old lady about it, but I think that we're both aware of the fact that that is simply not the case, right? You know, I mean, you, you there are all these, you know, the TikTok videos, Instagram reels, whatever. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a super famous food blogger with completely inaccurate information on the on their blog post, um, you know, the five mother sauces, which is like is is should be able to like rattle off the top of your head, you know, they're incorrect. So um, it's just like anything, right? Like, I mean, anyone can call themselves an expert. And the truth is, is with our ready to press you know, print button or, you know, launch button or post button or whatever, we all have the ability to, to put information out in the world. And sometimes what is, you know, popular isn't always right. So, but I do think at the end that the good content does rise to the top. So,
0: you know, one of my things is I always want to share that because, you know, if you were to just like most people aren't cooks, just Google Chicken Parmesan, you know, what's going to come Mm -hmm. to the top is going to be like allrecipes.com or something like that. One of those Mm -hmm. sites, it's like really find the chefs that you think are credible or websites and kind of then put that. And, you know, like I'm a huge fan of like Serious Eats and the food lab and the work that they do. So it's like if I'm looking for a recipe, I'll put, you know, carrot cake, the food lab or go to, say, the Eating Well website or, you know, Bon Appetit Mm -hmm. instead of just like searching for some broad thing because there's so much information out there it's like i kind of want to make sure that where i'm pulling recipes from if i'm doing a search is coming from someone who kind of knows what they're doing
1: exactly and it's no different than like looking for a plumber right you know what i mean like you want you can look someone up online but once you found them online you want to make sure that they know what they're talking about and so um you know all recipes uh, i know that they have a test kitchen and they do they do good work however there are some um some crowdsourced uh recipes that are on some of these major media sites and that's no different from the blogger that's you know never made a recipe before but it photographs beautifully and it's not really tested because she just made it and photographed it at the same time you know so it's always important to know your sources it doesn't matter you know whether it's a you know you know, uh, whatever it is, is there's just a lot of misinformation out there. So you're right, it's super important to, to make sure that you know, the source, and that you can trust the information.
0: So kind of getting back to the cookbooks, I've seen an evolution kind of looking at your books, and, uh, you know, the progression there. And I know, one of your books was lighten up y'all, which I thought was really great, because it took some of those Southern classics and made them a little healthier. So that was what like two thousand fifteen I think that came out
1: yeah yeah that was two thousand fifteen well, there are two parts to it and and thank you for noticing that so some of what I did was I lightened things up I just made some small tweaks that didn't make a a huge difference with the recipe but and still honored the original intent um, but you know face it uh oven fried baked oven fried chicken and fried chicken the only thing in common is the chicken right that's not. A, oven fried chicken does not taste like fried chicken so um, and another piece of that is that there are uh, lots of southern recipes that are actually healthy you know they're actually healthy to begin with you know we have a like I mentioned earlier we have this 12 month growing season we have the ability to have fresh fruits and vegetables out of the ground or off a tree 12 months out of the year so there are, healthy Southern recipes that people are just not aware of because they think that everything in the South is fried. Um, but, but yeah, I, Lighten Up Y'all has a, has a, a, a special place for me because I think it alerted people to the fact that, you know, all Southern food is not unhealthy.
0: And why did you want to do that book?
1: for me, then it was a very much a personal journey, right? Like, so I, um, and I, once again, have sort of come back to this place. So in 2015, you know, after being in food and and beverage for so long, you know, obviously not in the restaurants, but it just in my life it's like, okay, wow, I'm getting a little off track here. Um, you know, I need to lose a little weight. I need to lose some weight. So, I lost weight. And as I lost the weight, I was developing these recipes. Um, So and I'm proud to say that that book did win a James Beard Award, which, of course, is one of the greatest accomplishments of my career. And uh, and I go I reach for that book a lot.
0: So I want to continue this with kind of health and wellness, because I know you've been on a health and wellness journey, and what have you lost? Yeah. Something like 60 pounds is that about? I've lost,
1: uh, yeah, it's like six, 65 to 70 pounds after this weekend. And chicken and dumplings, it's probably a bit closer to 65. That is amazing. <laughs> That's, I mean, and
0: it's so much work because I've gone up and down for years. Um, yeah. I recently lost about 40 pounds, I've put a little bit back on, and it's yeah. just kind of like getting into the routines. Winter is really hard for me because walking was huge, and I'm in a cold weather climate. Like. Today, I'm not getting out there and getting my 10,000 steps today as much as I would like to and like figuring out what's going to work for me in cold weather.
1: So what happened was 2015, I wrote that book. 2016, I wrote, won a Beard Award. 2017, my partner got, my partner at the time got cancer. You know, uh, 2018, her parents moved in with us and you can see where this is going, right? Like I was eating my feelings and eating and drinking my feelings and I put back on a lot of the weight that I'd lost. And so I guess it was 2018. Once again, I had that sort of like, wow, okay, I gotta do something about this. This is not going in the right direction. But what is really interesting for me and the the feeling and the the, the heart, my heart behind it is that I now realize that I wasn't fully bought in a couple of years ago, right? So I had wanted to lose 50. And I was only able to lose 40 in 2015. And then when this most recent health journey came about, I knew it was a greater number than 50, but I kind of like just put my blinders on and headed in that direction, right? It was just like sort of, I want to be healthy and strong. It wasn't about like a specific number. And, And now what has happened, which is an indicator of the success, is that in 2015, when I won that Beard Award, I'd actually put on a little bit of weight already. And with this turnaround, I've lost, let's just say, 65 pounds, and I've kept it off for more than a year. I have changed my relationship with food, and, and that is what is the key to success. And you know how hard it is in this business.
0: There's so much that goes into it. And I find that it's it's just tough with the lives that we live with both time and cost, right? Like, I mm-hmm. now, what I'm doing, so, I mean, there's a whole bunch that's been going on, but I hurt my back in November. I uh, went to a chiropractor. He said I had six subluxations in my spine, and, you know, on a scale of, like, one to four, I'm at, like, a three for degradation. So, it's, like, that came on, and I've had all these things. It's, like, so I started going to a chiropractor, which is amazing, started doing physical therapy. I'm getting stronger, some weight's coming off, but, like, just looking at that, it's, like, I go to a chiropractor three times a week. I go to PT twice a week now, like, if I want to go out and walk five miles a day, like, people who have a nine-to-five job, like, that's, that's tough. Like, when are they going to get the care they need? When are they having time? Like, you really have to make this a priority in your life. And then if you're going to eat well, like, cooking at home uh, is a little – I mean, it's more time-consuming than just getting fast food or – things that are easy to cook and reheat. So, you know, I think that's been one of the the barriers to a lot of people, myself included, was both time and cost for some of this. I mean, it yeah. it doesn't always have to be as time-consuming or as expensive, but it's a little bit.
1: No, sure. There's no doubt about it, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, if we want to step away from our personal zone for just a minute, if you if you take into the fact that, like, you know, obesity in the South, for example – um, obesity in the South is not because of traditional fried foods and, and biscuits and fried chicken. It's really not, um, obesity in the South is directly related to education and, and income and, uh, cheap food is not nutritious. It's high in calories, you know, those dollar meals. So it really is like we've, we've created, um, a situation that makes it harder for people to eat healthy. It's, it's more expensive to buy meat that's organic. It's more expensive to buy um, proteins that are uh, sustainably sourced. It's more expensive to uh, buy vegetables and that the, the people planting the food and harvesting the food are, are paid a decent wage. You know, our, our food system, there's a lot of cracks in our food system, and it really does translate and sort of trickle down to the number that you read on your scale it, it it's pervasive
0: and I know you know one of the things that is not good for any of us is also alcohol and' so a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of chefs I mean not just chefs but especially people in the food industry have issues with that and while I would never say that I had a problem with that I drank I still drink but I d- definitely notice, you know, like last night, I had a drink, and then the first thing I did was like had some chips. After that, right? So it's like it's doubly bad for you because not only are you getting the calories, and it's I know it's going to disrupt my sleep, but then I'm not making those good food choices as well. So it's just kind of like this downward spiral, right?
1: It's really easy, and um, and I have definitely um way backed off on alcohol. I mean, I think that it's no secret that the 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 food business, the food and beverage business, there's a huge emphasis on beverage. There's a lot of drinking, I think, that, um, you know, regular life. uh, I mean, Americans drink a lot to begin with. But if you if you look at the food business, you know, people drink even more than that. I mean, we used to my, you know, Lisa and I used to like have a drink or two before dinner every night, split a bottle of wine with dinner every night. I mean, that's just like a Tuesday, right? That wasn't catching a buzz. That wasn't like having a great time. That was just Tuesday night. You know, a cocktail before dinner, at least one, and then a half a bottle of wine with dinner. And that's a lot of alcohol. And so um, for multiple reasons, for me, it, mental health included, physical and mental health, it's like, I need to back off here. And uh, with the pandemic, especially, I thought, what do I need to do to keep myself healthy? And uh, what do I need to do to stay on this path of losing weight and I knew that that would be an important piece for me, you know, and I I didn't want to be eating or drinking my feelings and my fears. And there certainly was plenty with the pandemic, especially in the beginning stages. And then, you know, much like you, I have a, I had a back issue and the medicine that I was taking um, didn't mix with alcohol. So that was like a blessing. That was a like, okay, well, there you go. That's taken off the table. And that gave me some space with it. And my relationship with alcohol has completely changed and I'm in dry January now and I finished up a uh, um, three months uh, at the end of the year and I'm not certain about drinking or not drinking. Like I just, I'm not drinking today. Sometimes
0: those health issues, I mean, that's kind of what started the whole thing with the weight loss with me. It was mm-hmm. like, I was just sitting too much when COVID started mm-hmm. drinking too much coffee. Like I was all strung out and I got a really bad they, they don't even know, but they think it was like prostate issues, to be honest. And mm-hmm. as you start looking at the things you can do for that, it's like walking and like don't drink alcohol, like alcohol and caffeine make it worse. So it's like, okay, I'm just going to walk like five miles a day and stop. And I didn't drink alcohol for eight months. And now wow, it's like yeah. one of those things where it's just like, yeah, like last night I had a cocktail. It was the first time I had a cocktail in two weeks and you know, right. I had one and um, yeah, and I'm okay with that. And that's where I've kind of found my balance.
1: And I think that that's important to know because it's so, you know, it's just, it's those, you know, we keep hearing about it on, you know, different shows and podcasts and stuff. It's like different neural pathways. So at the end of the day at five o'clock or, you know, whatever, six o'clock, eight, whatever, people get off like, oh, wow, what a great day. I had a good day. I'm going to have a cocktail. It's just breaking that habit, you know, and if, you know, my joke, so my system of accountability is Weight Watchers. And, and I'm not a spokesperson or anything like that. I just find it a really easy tool to use. Um, I'm not a huge fan of their packaged foods and the processed foods. I just find it easy to know that points that, you know, certain points are easy to calculate as opposed to like two points, as opposed to 250 calories or four points, as opposed to 500, you know what I mean? Like the numbers, just the, the numbers are smaller, but you know, uh, I think it's, a uh, Uh, One and a half ounces of bourbon is like five or six points. And, you know, down south, one and a half ounces of bourbon, that's hardly enough to wet your ice. So uh, (laughs) that's kind of a why bother.
0: Yeah, no, totally, totally. (laughs) With uh, your recipe development, so when you, like going forward, what are your recipes going to look like? Are you going to exclusively kind of work in the healthier food
1: space? So I think that this is, thank you for that question. It's a really great question. My food in general has definitely changed. Um, but having said that, am I going to try to make uh puff pastry with, you know, margarine? No. You know, am I going to, you know, I, th- that is something that in my mind is really different. Like I haven't done anything, like I didn't go keto. I didn't just, dis- I didn't uh, say all these, this long list of foods is off limits for me. I have, for all practical purposes, continued eating the same kind of foods that I have eaten my whole life. I'm eating less of it. I am eating, definitely eating more vegetables. I have definitely changed my proteins, but nothing's off limit. So if I want to have a pound cake, I mean, this afternoon, for example, when I missed our earlier appointment, I'm baking a, um, a, a pumpkin, a healthier pumpkin, like breakfast bread. So when I do those development projects, I definitely bring the health to it because I think that everyone could benefit from this. Right. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes there's a time to celebrate and that means, you know, that means going whole hog, so to speak.
0: I think I saw something from you somewhere that said, like, instead of having beef and broccoli, have broccoli and beef or something, right? Like, it's still the same thing. Just kind of switch the amounts, the ratios of the ingredients.
1: Right, right. And I've got a recipe development project that I'm working on this week, I think, for the AJC that um, I'm going to do a beef stroganoff, which, oh, my gosh, how could that be light and healthy? It's noodles and beef and sour cream. Well, I'm going to what I've decided to do is I'm going to do basically equal parts mushroom and onion to beef. Right. So you get the beefy flavor. The mushrooms, of course, are really high in umami. The onions are there for sweetness, but they're also going to bulk up the dish. And then um, and then what I will probably do is use a a little bit of flour in there so that the the sauce will not break and use a, a lighter sour cream or perhaps a yogurt. I have to see because I know, we 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 know that there has to be enough fat so it won't break. But and then and then there you are. So is it classic traditional beef stroganoff? No. Does it honor the recipe? Yeah. Does it taste good? Yes. And that's the most important part.
0: I've really enjoyed changing the way we cook and eat at home. Doing the same thing, like I'll make a meatloaf and I'll do fifty percent ground beef and fifty percent turkey or something, or you know. Yeah cooking quinoa and adding that in as the binder instead of breadcrumbs to stretch it and give you, you know, and I think those are totally delicious and acceptable substitutions. And it's just like getting in that mindset of like, that's how you're going to cook. Right.
1: Yeah. And in my mind, I feel like it's actually expanded my palate, which is so interesting. I don't feel like I'm limited. Okay. So I know for a fact that I love classic butter cream, sugar, French cooking. And I know for a fact that I love that old school Southern with the fat back and the hog gel and all of that. But now I feel like my palate is even expanded because I like the classic meatloaf, but I also like turkey meatloaf with quinoa. You know, my taste buds have changed. And I think that that's something that it's important for people to realize if they are trying to start a health journey or they are on a health journey is that, These subtle changes that you and I are discussing, they don't happen automatically and they don't happen overnight, but they will happen. You can change your taste buds.
0: Oh, you can. There's things that I used to not like that I love now, and it does take some adjusting and finding the Mm -hmm. right way to cook things. I mean, I think a perfect example is like Brussels sprouts. Like I still don't want to eat a pre-frozen boiled brussels sprout like it's not delicious at all it's like but once and so many people for years didn't eat them it's like well all they had to do is roast them right Right. Um, you know a little bacon helps but even if you don't have the bacon just the process of cutting them and tossing them in like maybe you know an avocado oil and throwing them in the oven with some seasoning Mm -hmm. on it it's a totally different animal than a boiled or steamed brussels sprout
1: no sure and if that's all everyone's ever had then of course they're not gonna like them right you know it's like um, no, and, and that speaking of Brussels sprouts, so that is something that I think is like, is really important. And we know it's important for our health. And it's also important for, for weight and weight control is I make a point to eat um, a minimum of two fruits and vegetables at every meal. And that helps on so many different levels. It helps me get the nutrients, but it's also filling, right? So it fills me so that I'm, I'm filling myself. With a fruit or a vegetable. And therefore, instead of me wanting that, say, whole steak, you know, whole bone in ribeye, I'll be happy with four ounces of that steak, which is technically what we're supposed to eat. But if you think about a bone in ribeye, you know, that's a pound, pound and a half.
0: Yeah, I'm not interested in that anymore. Just like the idea of this gigantic steak in the middle of the plate, like I can't even tackle it. I go to a friend's house and they serve me this giant steak. I'm like, first of all, like cut that in third, like I'll come back for more if I want it, but like that, I I'm just not going to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. When I get people on the show, I send them some questions and, and kind of want to know what they want to talk about. One of the things you had said, um, that was interesting to you or that you wanted to talk about was sustainable seafood. Yeah. What is it about sustainable seafood that is important to you and why do you want to talk about it? Oh,
1: well, thank you so much for asking me. And I think that's so great. So, um, Sort of a long story short, I grew up in the country and my grandparents had a pond. And when I was a very little girl, we were taught the importance of the pond and we were taught to like not go down there, that it was dangerous to go by ourselves, but it was also about the ecology of the pond. And my, my my country granddaddy never used the word ecology of the pond. But from the very beginning of my life, the pond was a very important place for us. And then so fast forward, you know, whatever, 30 years. And it was when I was working for Martha Stewart and the book Mark Kurlansky, uh wrote called Cod, The Fish That Changed the World came out. And it was this, once again, sort of light bulb moment. Like it never occurred to me that we weren't treating the ocean with the same respect that my grandfather had tried to teach me to have for the pond. So my sort of mission um, being a non-restaurant chef is to to take some of the food trends and some of the things that, the, that, that, that restaurant chefs are learning and doing and to translate it so that home cooks can do it in my magazines and the blogs and the, the videos that I do. And on that same note, it's to take that information about sustainability because people don't think about it. and we don't know about what's underneath the ocean because we can't see. And I think it's important for people to realize that we we really do need to start making more sustainable choices with seafood because we're we're eating it up.
0: And educating your customers, you know, wherever you have customers. I remember when, mm-hmm. uh, it was probably like 12 years ago, I was working in a place and we were selling orange ruffy. And then soon thereafter, that was one of those fish that they kind of put on the red yeah. list of like, We're overfishing, you know, similarly with like Chilean sea bass and it's, you know, but then if you've had it on your menu and customers are accustomed to this and ask like, why don't you have that anymore? Letting them know, educating your wait staff and just kind of saying, you know, it it, apparently there we're overfishing it. It's something that we want to see coming back right so like we're just going to decide to not serve it and make that choice and it's great to see some of those fish that were being overfished now the populations are coming back because i think a lot of people stood up and said we're just not going to put it on our menus
1: no exactly and that's where and so i'm on a, a committee um for the monterey bay aquarium called the blue ribbon chef's panel for seafood watch and for those of your listeners that haven't heard of it seafood watch is this great program for the by the monterey bay aquarium and it's a science-driven approach, and they basically grade seafood. Uh, green means go. Yellow means think about it. Red means don't do it. Um, Whole Foods Market is probably the the, the most visible use. Uh, their seafood is all either okay by Seafood Watch or Marine Sort um, Marine Stewardship Council. But it's important because we're eating the species out. And so if if someone is aware of it, like you're saying, and some of those species can come back, you know, for example, cod, the book that 30 years ago, 20 years ago that I read that got me on this journey, you know, cod are coming back in St. George's bank because they have had these restrictions in place. So if we, if we leave them alone a little bit, the, the populations can recover. There's so
0: much food in the world that, you know, I th- I think we get in this abundance mindset, like we have money and we have abundance or we think we have abundance. And it's like, you want everything when you want it. And I think just getting people out of that mindset of like, no, you, you can't always have everything you want all the time.
1: Right. And then, and we eat like, you know, I think it's uh tuna, shrimp and salmon. I mean, it, you would be hard pressed. Uh, so many people are, people are terrified to cook seafood. Um, but even if you go out to a restaurant, like it's really hard for chefs to put something other than tuna, salmon or shrimp on a menu because people are so nervous about it and it's expensive and, you know, all the things. So, um, and, and it's complicated, right? Because uh, some farm seafood is good. Some farm seafood is not good. There's not like this big black and white line down the middle. Uh, it's a very complicated and complex situation, but um, it, it's it's worth it, right? It's it's worth it for us to, to worry about and to tend to the health of our oceans.
0: One of the things I see with fish is it's also hard to judge what's going to be available when. Like, I feel like you can always get salmon, shrimp, like customers. I'm planning a dinner party for customers in a month, and they want me to give them a menu proposal. And it's hard for me to say, like, we're going to have rockfish or we're going to have swordfish, you know? So one right. of the things I get into is saying like, can you, can you be a little flexible? Like it's, it'll be delicious, but I'm not going to know until a couple days out what my offerings are going to be. Um, and then right. they might say, well, then just give me a salmon or a shrimp, but I really try and get people um, to say like, no, just trust me. Like if you like mild fish, there will be some kind of mild fish available, but I can't tell you like which specifically it will be. Right,
1: right, right. No. And, and, and it's just something, But once again, it's like just showing people that there are some choices and hopefully the choices that they do make. Um, I do a lot of work with the Wild Alaskan Company and that, you know, it's in the Alaskan constitution that all seafood harvested from the waters of Alaska must be sustainable. I mean, it's a it's, you know, Alaska is a conservative state. This isn't like, you know, hippie love in California kind of stuff. But they realize that it is a resource that they have to protect. And so, you know, all seafood harvested in Alaskan waters is deemed sustainable by the by the fisheries department for the state of Alaska. And, you know, but it is important to just try other other species, like to expand our species. And I encourage that for any listeners, right? Like if if you're always ordering salmon just for kicks and giggles or that swordfish one time,
0: what's the worst that will happen?
1: What's the worst that will happen? Yeah, might, you're just going to get turned on to something. yummy.
0: Are you someone who sets goals? And if so, do you have any either short-term or long-term goals? Like, you know, especially as we're at the beginning of the year, I don't want to say like resolutions, but.
1: Yeah, no, um, I do definitely. I'm very much a goal setter. Uh, my whole life and my whole career has been like, okay, I want to go work for her or I want to go do that or I want to write that cookbook or, you know, so um, I, I kind of feel like you have to, your head in the direction that you want to go even if it's like sort of a vague goal like when i was losing starting the weight loss process that you know i want to be healthy and strong it wasn't like oh i want to be this number um at the beginning of the year what i've decided is that i needed to do was to sort of reassess my my intentions which is different than a than a uh, resolution i wanted to make certain that i was um aware and refocused on what I was eating, like just to kind of give it, give myself like a little booster shot, so to speak of like eating healthy and taking care of myself. One of my main goals for the year is to improve my sleep habits because sleep is so important for our health and um, memory. And you know, as I'm aging, et cetera, like I, I, you know, I'm a, I can, I can get by on not much sleep and it's not a good habit, but I, I do think that it is good for people to, you know, and how I handle it is to, to think about what you want, where you're going. If you don't have any idea, then, you know, you're just kind of bobbing along. Sometimes it's going to work out and sometimes it's not, but I always think it's a good idea to have an idea where you're going.
0: Me too. I'm a, if I don't have it like spelled out in front of me, it's really easy to lose track, especially like, you know, COVID was so weird. Like I feel like people got thrown for a loop. And if you had, a goal or a schedule or something, it was easier to stay on track with that.
1: Sure. Sure. We're humans are, humans are, we we like habits. We like structure, you know, I mean, it's not really any different than your eight year old kid, right? You know, the kids like structure. And at the end of the day, we're all just really a bunch of eight year old kids.
0: <laughs> and I've just found that like sleep, like, that's something that I neglected for way too many years, burning the candle at both ends, like working on things till two in the morning or just staying up watching TV. Um, I read the book. Is it Why We Sleep? Matthew Walker, amazing huh. book. Like, um, But now I have we have a new mattress. I've got my um, mask. I got my blue glasses huh? that I wear You know, before I go to bed. I try to yeah. not do the electronics. Uh, yeah all that kind of stuff. We have a white noise in the bedroom. Like I'm really trying to optimize.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm going to have media. to get that. Yeah, no, I need to I need to listen up to what you're doing. I need to get that book for sure. No, I mean, you know, my whole thing, I'm looking at a sign that says all in. So for me, like, okay, I've lost 65, 70 pounds. I've kept it off for a year. I walk three and a half miles every day. But for me to ignore that piece of it, then it's not all in, you know, I'm not fully committed to this. And it really is. I mean, sort of for me, it's like just trying to be the best person that I can be, the best person that I can be at my job, the best person that I can be, you know, just as a normal human caring for other people, the best cook I can be, the best chance I can have at at career success. If I am, you know, feeling good and mentally sound and getting enough sleep, that's going to put me in a better chance to succeed at work. So, you know, I'm all about giving ourselves the best chances to do what we need to do. And I always
0: like to ask people, what are their favorite things, resources? It could be culinary, it could be something for a better life. It could be websites, cookbooks, tools, apps. Uh, What are some things that you love?
1: Well, there is an app called Mind um, Insight Timer, and it's a meditation app. It's a free app. And I use that a lot. And um, I use it. There's some some folks that talk on there and there's the meditations that I listen to to go to sleep, but there are also plenty of talks about different things. And just this week, for example, I learned, um, you know, it was a talk that I listened to that basically within every human, there is the capability for war and there's the capability for love in every human. And we don't like to think about it, but I am capable of war. You are capable of war. Is it likely? Probably not, but someone is. And so it's just really sort of like the, I I look for resources like that, that help me more whole body. So um, Insight Timer is cool. And then I always, you know, I love uh, the food ones, right? Gastro Obscura, Serious Eats, Eating Well, Weight Watchers. Like what can I learn that's going to help my life? And uh, I always, of course, am drawn to the food sites.
0: I love the calm app, which sounds a lot like what you do. and yes. we and we pay for it. It's totally worth it to subscribe to get the extra stuff. We listen. My wife puts it on every night to go to sleep. I use mm-hmm. it every day. I try and do like a fifteen minute kind of mindfulness breathing mm-hmm. practices during the day for focus. Um my kids, like when they have trouble going to sleep, they'll put that on and there's like calm stories for kids. So it's not necessarily breathing techniques, but just like a soothing story to help them. And that was like one of the best things that we've gotten.
1: I think that that, I love that that has become more prevalent and present in our lives. And I think it's been very necessary with the craziness of the past couple of years um, because people have been so anxiety ridden, I've definitely had increased anxiety. You know, worrying about my health, worrying about my family's health, worrying about the health of our country—like all of it, right? And so, anything that can help alleviate that, um, I think, is good. And it's just—it's yeah—it's super easy to grab a bag of chips and distress eat, or it's super easy to like, oh man, I had a hell day. I'm gonna pour a double bourbon. It's—it's it's not as easy. To take 15 minutes and to do breathing techniques, right? It's not as much fun, but at the end of the day of those three choices, that's probably the best one for us.
0: And I recently discovered this, um, scientist and he, his whole thing is about, uh, nasal breathing. And I realized that like, that's I, something I don't do. And he's written whole uh-huh. books on this that like, Everything comes down to like breathing through your nose. Like, you should not breathe through your mouth ever. That, like, your mouth is not for that. Um, And the science is intriguing. Everything from, you know, like, I guess it oxygenates your blood and it can relieve like muscle tightness and tension. But the big thing that I thought was really interesting in these times, he said, you know, no one's talking about it, but like, if you just look at COVID, like, if you are breathing in through your nose, what's coming into your body's filtered better than through your mouth, it's not going right into your lungs. And then the same thing if you're breathing out through your nose, you're not spewing out these moist particles as much mm-hmm. as, you know, if you're breathing out through your mouth. And then there's something about the process of breathing in through your nose that there's some – your body creates some like um, – disinfectant, antimicrobial thing in the nose. So then people who actually have COVID, it can help. It's like sterilizing your lungs a little bit. I just thought, you know, things like that. Like you don't, you literally don't have to pay for anything, do any extra work of like going to a gym. It's just like focus on breathing in and out through your nose instead of your mouth. Like, could that make your life so much better, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's doable because what I find that happens, Chris, is that if you're doing this one little thing over here, it's, they call it the domino effect. And I, I personally find that sort of like a more, um, it's almost brusque, but the domino effect, if you do this one good thing, that it will lead to other things. And I kind of like to think of it as like a web. So if I'm eating healthy and I'm walking every day, you know, every night I write, we write about this in the eating well piece. Like every night I have this whole procedure with I, where I put lotion on my hands and on my feet. And I usually put like a CBD lotion on my feet because I'm walking three and a half miles a day. And, um, and it's become habit. And does that have anything to do with me losing weight? No. And does it have anything for me to do me to lose weight? Yes, it has everything to do because it really is that sort of whole body approach. We're, you know, fully functioning humans and have to look at our whole, our whole existence. And that's so smart about the The nose breathing,
0: like you were saying, you know, like when I hurt my back, it's like I'm spending this time going to the chiropractor and physical therapy. It's like, while I'm doing like, I don't want to have a relapse again. So it's like, I should probably also look at like, how I feel physically how I'm feeling mentally, like, oh, is there a better Mm -hmm. way that I can, you know, just be in better shape and better health, right? And it's very like, once you start going down that path, it's like, it's like addictive almost, you know, it's like, I don't I don't want to have any of that bad stuff anymore.
1: Exactly. It really does become kind of like a game. And then I think that that that's also something to encourage people that are really having a hard time. Like, okay, so when my back was at its worst, um, I couldn't walk three and a half miles a day. I could hardly walk up the stairs certain days. So but 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 having some level of success right? having one little victory, you know, even if it is just like uh, something small it gives us encouragement really. And I think that, um, there's just so much stress and so much tension and it's, it's so hard. We're faced with all these like unhealthy choices that when you can find those little, you know, gifts, those little victories, take them, embrace them, take them.
0: Absolutely. Was there anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we get out of here today?
1: Oh, I'm just so grateful. I think that the, the only thing I would like to to leave is that, you know, when, if, if people are, are embarking on their own health journey, um, is that, to, that they're worth it. They're worth it.
0: And you have stuff all over the internet. What are some of your favorite places to push people to, to find your work?
1: Well, I have a great time on Instagram. That's for sure. And that, that's sort of interesting, you know, um, uh how that's turned out but um um, any y'all can find me if you go to my website virginiawillis.com and there are links to facebook instagram twitter i'm pretty mouthy on twitter about politics just as a warning instagram is a little bit more food friendly
0: well that's great i put all that in the show notes and i will um (laughs) make sure everyone knows where they can find you awesome thank you so much thanks so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it i'm so glad we could catch up
1: no, I had a great time, Chris. Thank you so much. It's really cool. And I can't wait. I I, I can't wait to listen to myself.
0: And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.